So originally, I was going to preach on how we pay attention to and respond to violence that is too much a part of our life in Syracuse, underlined this week by some of the happenings at SU. However, it is amazing how a teeny, tiny germ can wreak havoc with your plans and dreams. <laughs> and so after 10 days of being really, really sick, I am bringing back a sermon I preached earlier, one that doesn't focus on how we pay attention to violence, but rather how can we resist and respond and build beloved community? Because we are stronger together than we are alone. And I use as my inspiration this morning a book written by Robin Myers called Spiritual Defiance, Building a Beloved Community of Resistance. In it, he defines resistance as a form of direct or indirect action, opposing anything in the dominant culture that brings death and indignity to any member of the human family or to creation itself. As Unitarian Universalists, I would bet that we would be able to get behind that. We affirm the dignity of each and every person so yes, let's resist what brings death and indignity to any member of the human family or to creation. But wait, let's think about that. A real resistance that can be a catalyst for transformation in society is not simply some kind of knee-jerk reaction or pushback. We who are liberal-minded do not change the conservative-minded by posting articles from Democracy Now! on Facebook. And the conservatives among us will not change the liberals by posting links to Fox News. Resistance cannot simply be making a really loud noise. If anything, the louder we are, the more chaos there is, and the less likely there is to be any real change or transformation. Actually, let me amend that a little bit. Resistance could be just a big noise, a huge argument, a loud gong signifying nothing but looking like resistance. Perhaps that would be a faux resistance. Central to Meyer's definition is the word action. And I think Myers means action with power here. I can stand in my kitchen and raise my voice to my children and wave my arms and make myself look mean, and in that I might feel like I am resisting their efforts to not clean up after dinner. But it might be way more effective for me to resist their natural inclination to messiness by quietly saying, the consequence to you not cleaning up after dinner is that you will lose your phone. No yelling is necessary in that instance. And key to all of this is that resistance does not transform unless you or I are undone first. In the church, as in life itself, the rule of entropy still applies. Things fall apart before they are put back together. Disorientation precedes reorientation. I would guess our facilities team knows this a little all too well. 
folks look back at the troubled times of this congregation and wonder, how did we let ourselves argue like that? How could we have been so... And there are any number of negative judgmental words that folks use to end that sentence. But there is another way to look at those troubled times. They were the time that this congregation was being undone. Some might describe it as pruning the plant so healthier growth can happen. And it is that in a sense. But it was also a time of undoing, a disorientation. Perhaps first you, you already has been undone. Or maybe this is a process that repeats and, does, and is not a once and for all kind of event. Maybe the troubles were one of the, one of the undoings. Maybe we are in the process of reorienting. What this all points to is that change is hard and does not happen all at once. Reverend Gretchen Hanley puts it this way, critical to Meyer's definition of resistance is the word action. Resistance for our purposes is not ideological, analytical, or theoretical. It, it's embodied in action that either directly or indirectly opposes those things that bring death or indignity. Spiritually grounded resistance has the goal of creating or facilitating transformation. Myers puts forth that there are three things that get in the way of this transformation. Ego, orthodoxy, and empire. So what if we were to see faith as resistance to ego? And here is where I think we use fall short a lot because we get so caught up in having the right answer. We get a little stuck. I think I've told this story before, but I have a colleague who served in a congregation on the West Coast, a place where you would expect to be on the front edges of environmental causes. Her congregation spent two years trying to develop a plan on how to compost at their church. They argued containers, methods, worms or no worms, volunteers, location, policy, practices. In the end, they never did, at least while she was there, start to compost their compostable waste. An opportunity was lost because individual folks in that congregation got stuck on making sure that their view which of course they each thought was the best or right view, was the one that won out. Sometimes to create change, we need to get our egos out of the way. For a group of people as tolerant as we are, and we are tolerant, we get our backs up more often than you would think. We have a strong intellectual history, a kind of DNA that is super comfortable with being smart and right. My answer might be the answer, but then again, it might also simply be one of the answers. The answer actually might be an interweaving of all of the answers. When it comes to beloved community, the ego must give way to something more powerful than image or ambition, or even reassurance that all is okay because my plan is being followed. 
Myers also speaks to faith as resistance to orthodoxy. And we do think we have that one down, don't we? Because we are the heretics, after all, aren't we? Robin Myers writes of our Christian ancestors, but it could just be, it could be just as true about us. Our formative story is not a tale of personal piety, but of daring and sometimes deadly dissent. Resistance is in our DNA. The spirit is not just a bomb in Gilead, it's a troublemaker. Damascus, Denmark, and Denver, in Selma, South Africa, and Sarajevo, in Philippi, Palestine, and Peoria. The spirit will not leave us alone. It awakens us to the simple but unbearable fact that the world as it is cannot possibly be the world the sacred intended. We have been working on civil rights and equality for hundreds of years, of our, and our universalist and Unitarian forebears were on the forefront of abolition and women's rights, of labor rights. We are on the forefront of LGBTQ issues and immigration issues and environmental issues. We are known for this. And even with, a de with decade after decade of work and passion, we are a denomination that is 88% white. As a denomination, we are taking a visible stand supporting Black Lives Matters, but we are failing miserably at actually being a diverse denomination in our pews, at our potlucks, in our committee meetings. We may grumble about conservative theologies, but their actions speak loud. Seventh-day Adventists and Muslims top the list as the most, most ethnically diverse. We mean well, of course. We sing our hearts out. We listen to sermons. Some of us even pray. Long prayers. But none of it can finally compensate for the fact that as a change agent, we have all but disappeared. Instead of leaven, we are like chameleons, absorbed into the very dominant culture we are called to critique and resist. It is possible that we have an orthodoxy that we are unwilling to look at, an orthodoxy that prevents us from being the beloved community with a welcome that transforms individuals and the world. It is not that we need to throw out all the old ways, but let us be aware of why we do something and what its impact is. If we resist orthodoxy, we will be more welcoming and open, not just welcoming to folks who act like they are educated, Eurocentric white folks. And what about faith as resistance to empire? Our roots in, are in the American Christian church, especially the heretical part of that church. We are good at telling society how it must transform, but we are sometimes a bit resistant to looking at how we must transform our own communities. We are part of an empire, the United States of America. We, as long as we choose to continue living here in this country and receiving the benefits from that, participate in that empire. And it is easy to get seduced by it. We are a heretical people with a prophetic voice, and we must not lose it. 
And so here are some suggestions on ways that we can resist empire. When you're standing in the line in the grocery store and you see a young black man who is sacking your groceries and avoiding your gaze, then wait until he meets it and say, thank you, sir. You could put in a garden so you won't forget where food really comes from. If you're raising children or you have an impact on grandchildren or nieces or nephews, you could try to raise nonviolent children. Eat dinner with your family. And if you live alone, find ways to connect face to face with other people. I'm really serious about that one, and I spend a good deal of time on social media. Face-to-face is a against-the-empire kind of action. Mute the soundtrack of the empire and its incessant babble and take a walk. Read more poetry. Figure out how to be alone with yourself and not go to a bar looking for a hookup. We really are what we do when no one is looking. Remember the gospel truth. Not a single one of us gets out of this life alive. All families are dysfunctional, and either all of us matter or none of us do. It's not that planting a garden will break the military empire of our world. I'm not that idealistic. I know that dinners together will not end the violence of the world. But if I take time and make a life that does not, as a default, follow the empire's status quo, I am way more likely to be ready to resist from a place of spiritual depth than I would otherwise. And wasn't that the point of enemy pie? Taking that time to be with the person you are most uncomfortable with? All of this resistance to ego, orthodoxy, empire, helps to build beloved community. And it is beloved community that is so, so countercultural. What would it be like if SU, in whatever they need to do as they respond to the acts of violence that have happened the past few days on their campus, thought about what it meant to build beloved community? I was talking with someone the other day about the story of John Murray, the minister credited with bringing universalism to this continent. As the story goes, when he landed in America, Thomas Potter said to him, I am so glad you are here. You are the one I have been waiting for. The person I was speaking with said that sentence had such an impact on them. What would it be like if we each had a place or a person that lit up when we came in the room? Or what if we each said to ourselves, I am so glad that I am here. I'm so glad I've been waiting a long time for me to arrive. What if each of us lit up when we walked in the room? What if we as a community lit up when we had visitors who walked in the room? 
When we invite someone into membership in our church, we might imagine that we are being recruited into a great countercultural resistance of love, a joyful effort that seeks in small and big ways to offer our lives as witness to and keepers of the great story of human connection, goodness, beauty, equality, and love. I am so firmly convinced that as we create that community here, a place where we light up when each of us comes in the room, a place of extravagant welcome, a place where we love the hell out of this world. I am firmly convinced we will transform each other and we will welcome the larger community into this place and transform it. And we will take that extravagant welcome out into the world and be part of the transformation. That is our response to violence. That is what spiritual defiance can do. And that is what will finally change this world in a world without end. May this be so.